Hi everyone, I'm Corbin Gregg. And I'm Kate Galliford. On today's Pride-focused episode of Retrospect, we speak with Jay Walker, co-founder and organizer of the Reclaim Pride Coalition, about the history of New York Pride events in the upcoming Queer Liberation March. We also talk to Vicky Carminate, Assistant Arts and Culture Editor at The Observer, about queer Black artists and the importance of Black artists for Pride. But first, we talk with Katz Fantulin, the Secretary of Rainbow Alliance, about problems LGBTQ students face at Fordham and what should be done now to address those concerns and support marginalized communities. I'm joined now by Rainbow Alliance Secretary Katz Fantulin. Katz, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. No problem. Glad to be here. So can you explain to students who maybe aren't as familiar with Rainbow Alliance, maybe those who are either coming to Fordham this upcoming semester or otherwise, what it is and what it provides to the student body? Well, Rainbow Alliance is Fordham Lincoln Center's LGBTQ and ally uh, organization. We, uh, we're a community-based club, but we also do activism. Our, our goal is, is sort of just to be here for the LGBT students at Fordham and also to help the wider community as much as we can. Um, one of the things that has made this Pride Month different has been the coronavirus pandemic, which has yeah. obviously changed plans for many marches and gatherings that would normally occur. Uh, one of the final in-person events that Rainbow Alliance did was the Cue the Spotlight event uh, featuring LGBTQ artists. Um, has Rainbow Alliance still been active throughout the pandemic and how are students still getting involved? We haven't been doing much since uh, campus shut down. One thing that, well, right now we're doing a fundraiser with uh, CSA, Commuter Students Association. Uh, we're fundraising for the Emergency Release Fund, which is working on getting people out of jail uh, during the pandemic. Right now they're, they're focusing on uh, LGBT people of color who are in jail. Uh, another thing that uh, we, we've been organizing is uh, the Me and White Supremacy workbook, or maybe it's White Supremacy and Me. We've been doing Zoom meetings every week to like, for our white members to like come and get on Zoom and go through like a page of those. One of the things that is most apparent, especially right now, is that people in general and students want change. What are some of the needs of LGBTQ students that have gone unaddressed by Fordham administration? I mean, right off the top of my head is housing. Fordham's like very homophobic, transphobic in regards to, to housing in that, you know, you, you can't have opposite sex uh, guests overnight at all, which is, you know, obviously stupid. You know, one, you know, is requiring sex and not gender. Two is assuming that, that gay people don't exist. One could argue that it's maybe a blessing in disguise for gay people to get their partners in, but it's, it's just still a shitty practice. And the other thing is that um, housing, like roommates, are determined based on sex. They, they put same-sex roommates together, which can be really uh, damaging uh, for, for a lot of trans people who are, are being forced to room with people of, you know, the wrong gender. Sometimes they even have to move off campus because it's the uh, administration like won't won't honor this. So, in terms of concrete steps moving forward, maybe for either Fordham administration or maybe even students, what would you say needs to change, or what specifically should be done to address the needs of students? Uh, one of the things uh, is to have like. LGBT specific housing, like gender nonconforming housing, as just like this apartment is, you know, take X amount of apartments in the dorms and say like these ones are not going to be uh, divided like upon the, the base of gender, like, or on the base of, of assigned sex that, you know, it's, you can just say like, I don't care uh, whose gender is with me and, and we'll all room together. I mean, some steps have been made, like they changed uh, the bathrooms. They added some, some gender neutral bathrooms, which is, you know, like the bare minimum. In general, I really think that Fordham has an issue with its reputation in that like a lot of times when I uh, meet uh, freshmen, like early on in the fall, 
at club day or something, a lot of times they're very surprised that Fordham even has uh, an LGBT club at all. Because they, they think that because they're, they're enrolling at a Catholic college that it's, it's not allowed. And I'll admit that it's, you know, it's not exactly easy to be LGBT on, uh, at Fordham. But we are still here. But Fordham is, is giving off vibes that we're, we're not here. Um, which is a, a bit alienating for, you know, for, for, for us, uh, but also for prospective students. So it, it's, it's, it's shooting themselves in the foot a lot. It seems like one of the big issues that we have is visibility and seeing that there are LGBT students on campus and that Rainbow Alliance serves to show that that is the case and Club Day definitely helps. But like you said, freshman students come and they're surprised to see what can be done to make sure that freshmen are aware that maybe there are safe spaces on campus and there are still things need to be done to make things better at Fordham? For Fordham itself, it's not so much that I'm blaming Fordham specifically as much as like the wider culture at, at universities and with, with Catholics and whatever, just sort of, they in many ways need to become more educated. Um, but also, I mean, Rainbow Alliance has been sort of uh, squeaking on by in terms of membership for the past like a uh, couple semesters. Um, so it's also sort of on us. We're we're trying to uh, raise awareness by getting uh, more more events out there and stuff. But it it actually has been been kind of hard because we have such like low rates of participation that sometimes we're, we're not even sure, like, are people really interested in, in a club like this? So, like, like that question is something that, that even I am, am not entirely, even I, that, that I am not entirely sure how to answer. Earlier on, you talked about the fundraiser that you're doing with the Commuter Students Association in response to, like, Black-led student organizations on campus, too, and the overall Black Lives Matter movement. One of the things that has become more salient and visible throughout this year's Pride Month has been the need to take into consider intersectionality and considering the specific needs of Black LGBTQ people. So mm -hmm. can you speak to how maybe Fordham students should either educate themselves or how Rainbow Alliance is working I mean, the, the, again, the, the main thing is, I, f I feel like one of the littlest things that you could do, like, as, as a white person or, or a non-black person is to, to get your wallet out. Um, and also Rainbow Alliance has been doing this, trying to, to work out ways that we can, you know, provide uh, liquid assets <laughs> to, to organizations that need it, uh, you know, because we're not you know we're, we're we're off campus we're on summer vacation we're not needing any money for anything so why not use whatever influence we can to to drum up uh funds for uh another more deserving organization is there anything you would say specifically to cisgender straight fordham students about what they should be doing to listen to their peers i don't i don't feel like fordham necessarily Fordham students come off to, to me, Fordham LC students come off as being especially like homophobic. Um, not, not malicious. I don't think that's a problem. You know, I don't think anyone is malicious. I think that if there's homophobia or if there's transphobia uh, on campus from, from, from cishet allies, it's down to a lack of, of knowledge, you know? And I always think that listening and, and learning is is the best you know antidote for someone who's looking to change uh or for someone who's looking to learn and and is open to having their mind like changed about things and again it's not even like people who are like i hate gay people it's people who maybe don't understand and are are being inadvertently homophobic um i feel like you know i don't i don't particularly feel unwelcome by students is what I'm saying at Fordham. It is more the administration and that is sort of unwelcoming 
And so for for CISET allies, I would say like be allies, like stand behind us, you know, come to Rainbow Alliance or or listen to your LGBT friends or help us with our uh, endeavors, you know, like getting getting housing fixed, <laughs> stuff like that. Just be there. And we'll be there for you if you need it. Do you have any final, more general thoughts for uh, the Lincoln Center population or anything you'd want to say? I feel like one bonus of, of coronavirus canceling, you know, pride parades and stuff is that it, it would not be a time really to, to celebrate right now with Black Lives uh, Matter movement, you know. It, you know, we, should, we shouldn't really be like resting on our laurels. And I think it's, it's almost fortuitous that coronavirus has been like, hey, <laughs> don't party right now. You've got, you've got work to do. Cats, thanks so much for coming on the show today. I think this Pride Month has shown that there's a lot of work to be done and a lot of thought that needs to be taken to get to a better place that goes beyond just celebratory nature that sometimes people go along with Pride. Yes. In normal months, it's more about activism and I think that Rainbow Alliance has made that really clear over the past few months. No problem. Thank you for having me. If you're interested in checking out the Rainbow Alliance or donating to the Emergency Release Fund, check them out on Instagram at FCLC Rainbow. Next, we hear from prominent New York activist Jay Walker and hear how NYC Pride events have changed since his first Pride in the 1980s to the upcoming Queer Liberation March this Sunday. Joining me now is a founding member and organizer for both Gays Against Guns and Rise and Resist, as well as co-founder of the Reclaim Pride Coalition, Jay Walker. Jay, we are so thrilled that you're able to join us for our special Pride episode. Hi, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So you are very heavily involved in several different activist groups located in New York. Can you talk a little bit about the groups that you're involved in and which you helped found and what their objectives are? So my uh, re-engagement with direct action activism started with Gays Against Guns in June of 2016 when the Pulse Massacre occurred in Orlando, Florida. I attended the first meeting that, you know, for the community to respond and grieve at the LGBT Center. And from that meeting, Gays Against Guns grew so that was that was my beginning of my re-engagement with activism after about a decade away from the activist world. And then uh, five months later, Donald Trump was elected. And immediately after the election in November, there was just sort of this surge of community meetings at people's homes, at churches, at the LGBT center. And one of those was Rise and Resist, uh, was what would end up becoming Rise and Resist. And that was a, a great meeting of, you know, a, a bunch of people from Gays Against Guns were there, as well as a lot of folks with histories in ACT UP and Queer Nation and, you know, lots of other activist groups going back decades and decades. And, but also lots of new people, people who were just sort of brought out into the streets by that moment. And so, you know, so that was sort of the beginning. And then that all sort of fed into the formation of the resistance. Um, you know, all of these groups were formed sort of you know, Gays Against Guns in June, and then groups like Rise and Resist and Indivisible and other groups like that were founded in that period between Election Day and Inauguration Day. We all participated in the women's marches on, on the day after uh, Inauguration Day. And it's just sort of grown from there. Can you talk a little bit about your personal experiences with queer activist culture and different celebrations of Pride in New York City? and how those experiences have changed over the years? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I moved to New York in 1985. Oh, wow. So that's about six, 16 years after Stonewall. And I'd say my first, pride, my first Pride March was probably 1988 with my first New York boyfriend. We both worked in the same store that happened to be a bookstore on Fifth Avenue. And back then, the Pride, the Pride March, when it was still really a Pride March, began on Upper Fifth Avenue, you know, usually around 59th Street. And uh, the bookstore that we worked in, the Pride March would walk by on Sundays. So that year, we both arranged to not be working on Sundays so that we could participate uh, in the Pride March. So we sort of, you know, and we had our, 
our store right there on 57th and 5th Avenue, the old Double mm-hmm. Day Bookshop. So we could go in, go to the bathroom, what have you, yeah. um, and sort of, you know, have a, uh, our, the store was a two-story store. So you could actually ha- have great, you know, views from our second floor windows mm-hmm. over the parade. So we got to, you know, sort of experiencing, experience it from there. And back then it was wonderful because either that year or the following year, we, I remember probably it was a float and and people marching next to it of gay writers, of gay authors. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't remember whether it was the Penn Foundation or or Lavender Quill maybe, or one of the other organizations of gay writers. And, you know, both of us working in the book business, my late, uh, my boyfriend, then my late partner. Um, he uh, was a writer. And so, you know, we were there on the sidewalk. We saw the gay writers go by and we said, oh, let's go march behind them. And so we just got off and marched, marched behind them and marched for the entire rest of the route of the, of, of the march down into the West Village. And that was the ethos back then. I mean, it was off the sidewalks into the streets. You know, it was, mm-hmm. there was a performative aspect of the, of the march, of the parade. Certainly by that point, there were floats. There were probably, there were a few go-go boys, you know, <laughs> on, on top of floats and what have you. But, you know, this was, you know, when I first started going, this was 1987, 1988. This was the height of the HIV AIDS epidemic. I think that first Pride March, we were still in the place where Ronald Reagan had not yet even said the word AIDS in, right. in public. So the political ethos within the march was still, you know, was still huge, was an incredibly important part of the Pride March. Even though there were a few floats and stuff, it, this was a political parade. This was a parade for our lives, for our dignity. And, you know, part of that ethos was off the sidewalks into the streets. If you're watching, if you're, if you're with us, if you believe it, just come on in and march. And that was the way things were, I would say, for the next, you know, eight to 10 years until around the time uh, Rudolph Giuliani became mayor. Mm -hmm. And so starting in the mid 90s and sort of creeping up over the course of the next five or six years, we began to see more and more barricaded more and and these were particularly these were the French style barricades, which we all call bike rack barricades that were brought over from France during this period by Rudy Giuliani and the NYPD. And uh, what we saw at Pride, you know, at Prides as time went on was just more barricading and more barricading first of the neighborhoods of the, um, the neighborhoods of the West Village around where the Pride March ended as a sort of crowd control measure or what have you. Uh, but then that crept into the actual march and the actual march route so that, you know, by, say, you know, 2000 or so, no one was able to uh, get off of the sidewalks and into the march. Uh, or it was, or if you could, it was really, really hard to do it. Um, you know, it was no longer um, just sort of free and open. If you were determined enough, you could sort of make a, you, you could figure your way into it with the, while the cop's back was turned, but it was not, you know, and they probably wouldn't arrest you if you were just going to join a contingent of people, but it wasn't, it wasn't easy. Um, and then as time went on, what happened also was that the March route became shorter and shorter. As I said, it used to start on Fifth Avenue in the upper 50s. Of course, during the period of ACT UP and the height of the HIV AIDS epidemic, John Cardinal O'Connor, who presided over St. Patrick's Cathedral, was a particularly divisive figure in New York politics and New York society. His attitudes toward gay people were particularly abhorrent, and his attitudes toward the treatment of people with HIV and AIDS were particularly abhorrent. And so the activist community, as the Pride March walked by a march past St. Patrick's Cathedral, it became an annual ritual to yell shame, 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 shame at the church as we went through. Eventually, ACT UP would do a civil disobedience action in the actual, in the sanctuary of the church itself. After that, I think it was after that ACT UP moment, I think that was when all of the elected politicians, even the queer ones, started joining the march after it had passed St. Patrick's Cathedral. So they would join it at about 48th Street, where there would be no politicians in it from 59th on down, and then all of a sudden they would join in after we passed 48th Street. So eventually, you know, I'd say by the you know early 2000s, I believe, certainly, the march was just shifted to begin below 48th Street, below St. Patrick's. 
And then over the course of the last 15 years or so, that starting point of that march got lower and lower and lower and lower on Fifth Avenue. I personally had not been in a Pride March or to a Pride March probably for about 10 years before I came back. And the reason I came back was because the Pulse nightclub massacre happened about two weeks um, before the Pride March, exactly two weeks, not about, exactly two weeks before Pride Sunday and Gays Against Guns. And after we were formed in the few days after, after that massacre, we determined that the way to launch our organization and our our movement was to do it in the Pride March. So in that two weeks, we managed to get a thousand people to join us. We managed to get 49 people to become what we call our human beings, to dress all in white and be veiled and carry a placard with the name of one of the people who were killed at Pulse. So we got all that together. And so this was the first time in years and years and years that I'd marched. It was honestly, because I had worked at Gay Men's Health Crisis. The last time that I had marched was my last Pride working with Gay Men's Health Crisis. So that was in June of 2006. So it was exactly a decade between my last Pride and the Pride where I marched with Gays Against Guns. And I was shocked how far south the the staging area had gotten in that 10 years. It was Mm -hmm. in the low 30s. Yeah. That's where the step-off point was in 2016. And then the following year, in 2017, it was also, it was in the same place, the same same approximate place around around the low 30s. Suddenly, when 2018 came around, though, Heritage of Pride announced, "Oh no, we're going to start the march in the low 20s in Chelsea, go down Seventh Avenue, start you know start at Seventh Avenue, go down Seventh Avenue, loop around through Stonewall Inn and 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 Christopher Street Park." and then go up Fifth Avenue to end in the mid-20s on Fifth Avenue. So suddenly the march was just this weird little horseshoe to nowhere, no significance in the ending point of the march. Mm-hmm. Doing staging of the march and uh, you know, sort of the, the prep that different organizations do when they're preparing to get out onto the march route was done on these tiny residential blocks in Chelsea as opposed to in Midtown West, when we were there, or in Midtown uh, in the 30s, those are commercial blocks. So the streets are wider and the sidewalks are wider. And, but by starting it in, in the 20s between 7th and 8th, having that be the staging area, we were dealing with narrower residential streets with narrower sidewalks. And on some blocks, there was construction on top of it. So it was kind of a nightmare. And then, uh, so that was the 2000. 18 March. Then after that 2018 March, the folks who had formed the resistance contingent in the Pride March for both the 2017 March and the 2000 and the 2018 March met with the organizers of Heritage or Pride to just discuss a lot of problematic elements that had developed in the Pride Parade, you know, over that whole period. And we talked about the over-policing. We talked about the over-barricading. We talked about the fact that the presence of police marching in uniform with their sidearms does not create a welcoming space for a lot of people in our queer black and brown communities, in our trans communities, in our immigrant communities, et cetera. We talked about how the the police regularly insists that the barricading of the march route is for safety, even when you point out to them that having people penned in is the least possible safe place for them to be in the event of a terrorist attack. You've literally made them sitting ducks, something that the NYPD still does not hear. So the policing, the barricading, the over-corporatization of pride, and the centering of the corporate interest, I think that was really set off in the 2018 Pride March during the WABC televised presentation of the first three hours, which the resistance groups were didn't get onto the Avenue until two hours after that was over, mm-hmm. uh, or 7th Avenue, I should say, until two hours after that was over, where you had the camera from above focusing down on the parade and the T-Mobile float and marchers along with the T-Mobile float, while you had an executive from T-Mobile on camp, you know, on uh, in the studio or wherever, uh, from the, the broad in the broadcast booth, talking with the hosts about T-Mobile and how great T-Mobile is to its LGBTQ employees, 
and then cut to commercial and it's a commercial for T-Mobile. Right. And that was just sort of, that was exact, you know, that just sort of summed it all up about what was prioritized for Heritage or Pride, who puts on the Pride Parade every year. The, um, the folks from that resistance contingent, we had formed the Reclaim Pride Coalition in that spring of 2018 because there was a lot of back and forth with Heritage of Pride about whether in a, a resistance contingent um, would even be allowed to march together as a group of 30 organizations all organized in the resistance against Donald Trump and his administration. So we'd already formed Heritage of Pride that spring, but after meeting with the, I mean, we'd already formed Reclaim Pride. Uh, in the spring, but after a series of meetings with the the folks at Heritage of Pride that summer after the 2018 Pride, we just decided that they were never going to to stand against these ridiculous decisions that the NYPD and the city government had imposed upon them to constrict our march, to um, police our march, to barricade our march, and to shorten it, all of these things. So we decided then and there that we would have to put on our own queer liberation march the following year, mm -hmm. which was the 50th anniversary of Stonewall, um, something that was really redolent of, that, that recalled the actual spirit of transgressive liberation politics of the Stonewall riots or uprising themselves, as well as the original Christopher Street Liberation Day March, which was done the year one year after Stonewall, which is now in its 50th anniversary, and its actual date was Sunday, June 28th, 1970. As it happens, this year for its 50th anniversary, Pride Sunday is again Sunday, June 28th, for the mm -hmm. 50th anniversary of the Christopher Street Liberation Day March. My first Pride was 2018. And it was the summer before I started at Fordham, and I had just come out and then graduated high school. And one of my friends from high school, we took Metro North in, and I just kind of picked a subway stop that sounded familiar to me, which is Christopher Street. And so you come up out of the one train, and you just see, like, NYPD squad cars with a little rainbow sticker in front of Stonewall. And like you said, there are floats with, like, rainbow vodka bottles and H&M and T-Mobile and heavy police presence and barricades. And just, it felt to me so incongruous to see this police presence in front of Stonewall and pride as a celebration without a lot of remembrance or recognition of what Stonewall Inn meant to the movement and who were those people at Stonewall, which are black trans women, queer people, uh, especially Black queer people, and it did feel strange to me. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about how, just coming in, like, I grew up in Connecticut. When I thought of NYC Pride, it was, like, a big celebration with the floats and all that, which is the parade that's put on by Heritage of Pride. And so I wanted to talk about the march that Reclaim Pride Coalition hosts. The HOP Pride Parade got canceled this year, but the Reclaim Pride Coalition march is still happening. So can you talk a little bit about why that march was organized as a response to what HOP puts on and kind of the history behind that? Yeah, the, the, the response was that the HOP Pride Parade had become, had nothing whatsoever to do with what the Christopher Street Liberation Day March began as. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what we wanted to do with the Queer Liberation March was to go back to the garden, you know, essentially to have something that was just our entire community all together, not broken up into contingents. Absolutely, a bunch of people from this group or that group would come together and could bring their banner and their, their signs, but we weren't about, okay, you guys go and stage over there and then you'll come out and then we'll wait 20 seconds and leave a space and then you people over there, you come out. No, this was about community. This was about real community, knocking down the walls that separate all of our different organizations. It was very much in the in the spirit of the original Chris Retreat Liberation Day, but it's also very much in the spirit of the modern resistance. I mean, I think that this last three and a half years under Trump have been like sort of the perfect sort of rehearsal for this current moment that we're going through right now, right? Because all of these different groups, which before Trump got into office had kind of been siloed into their own little world. Pro-choice people were over here doing their thing, Black Lives Matter and, and, and civil rights organizations and anti-police brutality organizations over here 
doing their thing. Environmentalists were over there doing their thing. Uh, healthcare equity people were over there doing their thing. Donald Trump got us all together. Donald Trump got us all together and in the same room and made us recognize the intersections between all of our work and how much we could all inform each other's work if we just took the time to learn about each other's work. And so we spent three and a half years doing that, doing just that, from women's marches to March for Our Lives to all these different moments that were, that were you know, short-lived and planned to be short-lived moments of, of, of single days of extraordinary, bro extraordinarily broad activism over the face of the country. And so when, after three months of being shut down with COVID, you know, America saw George Floyd be murdered in front of their eyes, slowly, but deliberately um, and callously. We had all the tools in our, at our disposal to just get up, stand up, get out in the streets and march and to not stop marching and to not stop until some real change is made. And that's where the Queer Liberation March sort of comes into it. We had been planning a regular march like just similar to what we did last year. We were going to be permitted. We were going through all the same steps that we did last year. And then COVID hit. And when the mayor said that no public gatherings would be possible until the end of June, just like reclaim, just like uh, the Heritage of Pride parade, we canceled too. And we began um, working on a project to, to do something virtual, but something very virtual and very intentional and still on the issues that we, that we like to stress. And those issues are about racism. They are about police brutality, about over-policing of communities of color and of queer and trans women. So a lot of the issues that we were founded on, we were planning on, on sort of featuring and highlighting those issues during our virtual program. And then we were hard at work at, on that. And then Mr. Floyd was murdered. And all of our friends were, you know, all of us, all of our members who, you know, not a not uh, fearful because of for, for health reasons or, or not able to because of health reasons, were immediately out in the streets marching every day from, you know, from, from the first day of protests here in New York. I think that first protest was in Union Square on the Thursday after the story from Mr. Floyd came out. I was not at that protest. The only reason I wasn't at that protest was that that night I was at a memorial that had been set up for Larry Kramer, uh, the founder of ACT UP, yeah. uh, who had died just the day before, just that mm -hmm. Wednesday. But so for me, being there was just as powerful and just as meaningful and just as invigorating for that moment as being at that first Union Square protest. But so when we had our first meeting after, you know, well, first week we had, we had our meeting for our virtual committee that was working on the virtual program. And we had all always planned to be doing some small number socially distanced and masked street actions to feed into the virtual program that we were planning so we had an actions committee meeting you know over the course of that that weekend immediately after uh, the first two two days of protest and you know and we had phone calls amongst our members and the end result is that every single person was like we're out there marching every single day already and here it is at this point you know very very end of may very beginning of june why on earth would we not be out marching on the last Sunday of June? Mm -hmm. And why on earth would we not sort of dedicate and focus the attention uh, put on to the Queer Liberation March that we're going to do on the movement for Black Lives and against police brutality? You know, the, the resonance, the commonality between so many of the struggles of the struggles within the civil rights movement and the struggles within the LGBTQ rights movement center around policing, center around the way that police are used as the cudgel to enforce the patriarchy, mm -hmm. essentially, to enforce the white patriarchy. And that pa white patriarchy is enforced on queer people just as it is enforced on black people, just as it is enforced on brown people. And so the fortunate thing in that we plan a march um, as opposed to a parade made it very easy for us to pivot. It made it easy for us to, to say, okay, we can do a march. I mean, look at the size of the marches happening all over town that were formed at the drop of a, at the drop of a dime. But fortunately, we did have the three and a half weeks to really put thought into our march, 
that to really reach out to organizations led by by black queer people and by black non-queer people as well to bring them into the conversation, to bring them into the talk about what demands we're making, which you can see up on our website, to highlight organizations to be able to to include a virtual component that really carries forth a lot of these issues that have been brought about by COVID and how they impact people at the racial lines. You look at the effects of COVID, and then that causes you to look at the effects of HIV, and you look at the browning of the HIV AIDS epidemic and how quickly the COVID epidemic or pandemic went from the jet set, right? Because that was the first group, right? Mm -hmm. It was the people that can afford to travel internationally, um, you know, and how quickly it moved from that jet set into black and brown communities. So there there was so much that we could talk about about this moment, but especially about violence against black people and violence against trans women also, especially uh, that um, it was kind of a no brainer. It was just about getting it, trying to get it as right as we possibly could. So I remember last year in June, 2019, I think that the police commissioner released like a formal apology on behalf of the NYPD and the officers that were involved in the violence in 1969 at Stonewall. And then flash forward to June 2020, and we're seeing people take to the streets in the thousands to protest on behalf of Black Lives Matter and against the brutalization of Black and brown people in this country. And we see once again, not that it ever stopped, but it's very clear the same brutal tactics that are being used by the NYPD on queer New Yorkers and Black New Yorkers in the way it sort of bleeds into the Queer Liberation March. Do you see this moment right now in politics and activism almost as a return to the roots of what queer pride was in New York and what we were fighting for and what we were celebrating? And do you see that return as being beneficial to the movement and sort of a a turning point for how we live our lives as queer New Yorkers and as activists. Yeah, I absolutely um, think that this is kind of a, a flashpoint moment, uh, but it, it's, it's beyond even just queer New Yorkers and queer activism. Absolutely. Um, you know, it really is this massively intersectional moment where everyone is on the same page. Everyone who cares about equality and justice in any realm is in this fight together. And I think that's what's made such a huge difference. That's what's made these protests be able to be sustained, you know, and not just in New York, but like, you know, in small towns all across the country, people are still getting out on the street and protesting. We've had you know, people are calling it an awakening. People are calling it a reckoning. You know, you, you look at the New York Times bestseller list and every book on it is about is by Black people or about racism or anti-racism or the Black experience. It's a huge cultural shift that we're seeing right now. And the queer movements, the LGBTQ movements, it's going to be really, really important that we play an important role in how this moves forward because all of these all of these fights are the same fight you know they're they're expressed in different ways but they're all the same fight and the more we realize that the more connections that we make across all sorts of lines the better able we will be to really face and and overcome all of the obstacles that we're seeing what are some things that Like, for instance, we as students at the Fordham community, what are actions or steps that we can take to support the Queer Liberation March and the RPC? Well, you know, for the for the Queer Liberation March, come out and march. Mm -hmm. Wear a mask. Come out and march. Everyone needs to do what they're comfortable with. You know, if you're comfortable coming out and march, absolutely come out and march. We're going to have marshals that are going to help sort of encourage people to socially distance themselves. We'll have extra masks, PPE, and what have you, in case people sweat through their disposable masks and need a replacement. We're going to have stuff like that. I'd say, you know, right now, what folks need to do is do anti-racist work. That's really the most important thing that people can do, is to educate themselves on anti-racism, to step back and listen to the stories and the truths that the black people and brown people are 
are telling you about our lives and to do everything that, that you can to support that work. You know, there's a Queer Liberation March is going to keep going for years on, on end. We are always going to focus on these issues as long as these issues still continue to present problems. That's what we've done since the beginning. But you can join us at our meetings. We meet weekly. Obviously, we're probably going to take a little break after this Sunday, except for mm-hmm. a debriefing for the people that worked on it. But you, if you go to at Queer March on either Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, and it's just Reclaim Pride Coalition on Facebook is the name of the page. You can find us, you can cook in to get involved with our meetings, or at least with our social media to, to share posts and information. You know, we start working on next year's March, probably in September, but we also do a lot of other work with mutual aid. We spend a month trying to get Franklin Graham's uh, Samaritan's Purse kicked out of Central Park. We were finally successful at that. We and Rise and Resist together kind of led that effort along with Reverend Billy of the Stop Shopping Choir. There's a ton of work that can be done. There's a ton of work to be done. It's really just about plugging in and standing up and, and, and walking into the space. The Queer Liberation March for Black Lives and Against Police Brutality will take place Sunday, June 28th, and will step off from Foley Square at 1 p.m. and finish in Greenwich Village. Jay, thank you so much for joining us. It was such a pleasure to hear from you and about the work that you've done and the work these organizations have done. And I hope that you continue to stay safe and we really look forward to all the work that's gonna be done in the future. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kay. I really appreciate you guys at the Foreign Observer just sort of bringing us in and talking with us. Thank you so much. For more information on the Queer Liberation March, you can check out our managing editor, Marielle Sarmiento's latest piece for the new section titled The Roots of Resistance. In the next segment, we talk with Vicky Carminate about the playlist she created for Pride featuring Black queer artists. We discuss the importance of Black LGBTQ plus people to the Pride movement in general and how much the success and visibility of the modern gay liberation movement is owed to Black queer people. We are now joined by Vicky Carminate. Uh, who's going to talk to us about her playlist that she created for Pride Month and Black LGBTQ activism. Hi, Vicki. Thanks for coming on the show today. Hi, thanks for having me. So your article emphasizes that Pride as we know it today owes its existence to the Stonewall Uprising and Black transgender women. Can you explain some of the history of Pride? Um, So I feel like you know, with my own journey of being queer and trying to find spaces where I belong, um, I found that researching where kind of pride originated um, was the most important, you know, most important thing that we could be doing as people, um, a part of the LGBTQIA plus community. Um, And so, you know, the Stonewall, Stonewall riots, I think the most common person that we hear is Marsha P. Johnson, um, who was a black transgender woman and, you know, was supposedly the first woman who threw that first brick at Stonewall when um, the police were um, unjustly handling um, gay people in front of their own space. And so, um, you know, it wasn't just her. She had her friend too, Sylvia Rivera, um, as well. And um, she was also a trans woman. But, um, you know, in general trans women and trans men and non-binary people are um, facing the most discrimination right now, especially black trans people and um, black non-binary people. So I I feel as though, you know, I can only say so much about this topic. I can only say what I know, but I encourage anybody who's listening and anybody who's part of that community to also do the research and, um, you know, really, yeah, really, really find out where their history comes from and the reasons why we are able to walk in this world the way that we are. I think, too, that um, at this particular moment, that Marsha P. Johnson's activism against police brutality is particularly important. And I Mm -hmm. think one of the things that we think about in this month for Pride, just with both the coronavirus and uh, the increased focus on police brutality, is the way that uh, black trans women and black uh, 
LGBTQ people just in general face particular issues with either the police or have a particular history with the Mm -hmm. police. So could you go into that a bit? Well, I feel like with any movement, um, there needs to be a focus on intersectionality. And so right now with the focus of the Black Lives Matter movement, at first, you know, it was really focused on George Floyd. Um, And then we did see um, some of our trans brothers and sisters and family also being um, murdered by the police and, you know, murdered by people within um, our communities as well. Um, Black and brown queer people have been disproportionately um, abused by everybody um, for way too long. And if we're not looking at the intersectionality between the Black Lives Matter movement and the queer movement, you know, and workers' rights and um, immigration rights and like all this stuff, then, you know, we're not really here for Black lives because Black lives intersect in so many different ways. Um, and it, and it, doesn't, it doesn't stop at cisgendered people. Yeah, you explain in your article that pairs with the playlist that a full understanding of pride requires fully knowing its history and the culture surrounding it. Um, part of this is knowing Black artists that perform and create. Can you talk about some of the artists that you identified in your article? I, you know, it's funny because when I was doing this playlist, um, I, I'd put like people I'd known, you know, like Frank Ocean. The internet is a, is a group of people um, who are all queer and Black. As I was doing my research, I didn't even know like some of the people that whom I loved listening to growing up. You know, like Billie Holiday was like one of my idols and I had no idea that she was queer. But I felt like the most important song on that playlist um, was by Shay Diamond. You know, just the fact that here's this trans woman saying, you know, despite what all of you think about me, despite um, what the media portrays about me, like, I hate to break it to you, but I am also America. These, there are other people too, you know, Luther Van Ross, who I didn't know was gay either. And Brittany Howard, you know, that Georgia is all about um, a gay relationship and, and these feelings that she has for this woman, but she doesn't really know, like, how to address that. Um, and so, I feel like with all these artists, especially coming from someone like me, who I'm very fluid in um, my sexuality and like how I perceive myself, you identify with some of the things that they're saying, it it almost strengthens your own identity because it's such a way to feel seen and and it's such a way to cope with, with how you're feeling. So, you know, all these people in, Every one of these songs reveals a little bit about themselves, reveals about their identity as a queer person. And, you know, I think that's beautiful. And I think that music is a great way to not only learn about these artists, but learn about yourself as well. You talked about a little bit of the research process when you were creating the playlist. Can you maybe speak a little bit more to that and how you decided to curate or focus this playlist? For sure. Um, Well, I started with people I knew um, who were queer, like I had said. Um, But then, you know, I watch watch Pose and that soundtrack is phenomenal. It's all, you know, 80s dance music. And um, so I looked into that and I looked into like what people, you know, black and brown people were listening to at the time. And then I looked into like um, within that genre of people um, who who were actually who who are those people were actually gay because if you look at you know Madonna came out with the song Vogue and Vogue is about black and brown ball culture and even though that song like highlighted and and brought um, so much awareness to the gay community um, she wasn't she's not to my knowledge she's not um, queer herself and she's definitely not black. Um, and so I thought it was important to try to find, you know, people who are saying the same things that she is about the community, but 
were also a part of it. Um, and so that's why I found like Sylvester, who I grew up listening to, but I, you know, I had no idea who he actually was and stuff like that. Um, so I, I've, it was more of me actively searching, you know, in this genre, who, who is black, who is queer, um, and how can I bring every genre that, you know, I personally like to the mix. So it starts off pretty like R&B and poppy, um, and then it slowly transitions to, you know, R&B and funk, and then it ends with this nice, like, jazzy little bit with Billie Holiday and Josephine Baker and stuff like that. So I, I really wanted to highlight different genres of music and in, in how queer representation is in every single genre. One of the things that's emphasized the most in your article and throughout the playlist is highlighting those voices. Mm -hmm. So if you can kind of give final thoughts as to what you think the importance of like art and highlighting those voices is. Human rights has been something I've been interested in since I was a child. And so um, I, I have been reading books and articles and, and doing all this stuff for a very long time. But I find that, you know, not everybody wants to read a 40 page article on race or on queer issues. And so I feel like that's, you know, that's where art comes in because not only do you not have to follow like these rules of academia, but like art is such a raw version and such a real version of what you read about in these books of like how to be an anti-racist and like, you know, how to navigate race related issues. It's like that knowledge is important, but within art, you get the real story. Um, and so I encourage everybody to look at, you know, not only who's writing your books, but who, who do you love as a visual artist, your photographers, who do you listen to in your music? You know, who are the people in your life that you're talking to? And you know, if they are majority white, um, then open your horizons a little bit. Um, Cause there's a lot more that we could be learning from just, just with having communication within art. That's just the way you make me feel. That's just the way you make me feel. That's just the way you make me feel. Vicky, thank you so much for coming on the show. I think it's super important that we talk about all of these issues and just try to have a more intersectional approach to uh, pride, something that I feel like maybe is lost over the years, but can be brought more to light and emphasized, especially now. Sure. Um, so thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. The link to Vicky's playlist is available on FordhamObserver.com or just search the Fordham Observer under users on Spotify. This has been Retrospect. Special thanks to all of our guests and our producer, Jacqueline Pierce. I'm Corbin Gregg. And I'm Kate Galford. From all of us here at Retrospect, please have a safe, happy, and meaningful pride.